All right, man, you know, imagine yourself, you've just robbed a joint. The cops are around the corner and you're, you're hanging out and you can see them and you're hiding behind that corner of a building and you can see them coming and they're gonna get you unless you stay hidden, you know? And it's like, that's the vibe I want you to have. Hey, what's up, everybody? Keith Billick here. Welcome into the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I'll start off with an apology. This episode is a bit later than I wanted. Uh, is one of those times where right when I was trying to get this episode out, all sorts of stuff started happening. Not all of it bad. I was playing a few gigs, had a few sound running gigs. I spent a few days in the studio recording with my band Wilson Thicket, which I'm sure you will hear more about that at the uh, appropriate time. And, uh, you know, all those other pesky needs such as eating and sleeping and uh, seeing my family and stuff. So that all seemed to happen right when I was supposed to get this episode out. So I appreciate your patience and I sincerely hope that in my brief absence, you were able to still enjoy your uh, daily intake of, of banjo music somehow. But uh, really happy to be back with you. Some other brief announcements about some events I will be at in the coming uh, weeks and months. I will be doing my annual pilgrimage down to the International Bluegrass Music Association Convention. That's the IBMA that happens in Raleigh, North Carolina, and that is the last week of September, and then I think it it goes through that first weekend in October. I will be down there at the exhibit hall with a uh, Picky Fingers booth, and I'll, I always share that booth with my good buddy Daniel Patrick, who hosts the Mandolins and Beer podcast. So that is, is basically the same type of show that I'm doing here, except for our mandolin-playing friends. So we'll be down at IBMA. Come by and say hi. We'll be set up all week. Uh, I will also be teaching at the Great Lakes Music Camp this fall on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. That is always one of my favorite weekends of the year. I'll be teaching alongside Bill Evans and Evie Layden as the, uh, you know, the banjo crew. And uh, hopefully see some of you there as well. You can find information about that at greatlakesmusic.org. And of course, none of this would be possible without the generous support of my Patreon subscribers, also known as my VIPs for very important pickers. And today's VIP of the show is Christopher Clark. Chris, thank you so much for your generous contribution to keep this show running. And I do mean when I say this would not be possible without you and the rest of the VIPs out there. How do you become a VIP, you're wondering? Well, I am glad you asked. It's very simple. You head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. You can subscribe for as little as a few dollars per month, and you even get rewards in exchange, uh, in addition to knowing that you're supporting the, the old banjo podcast here. So once again, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Other ways to support me, if you head over to banjopodcast.com, that is where you can get your world-famous Picky Fingers logo t-shirts and stickers. And if you use coupon code SUMMER23 right now through the end of August, you will get 23% off your order. So don't miss your chance to get one of those. And as always, you can email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Always love hearing from you. Standing around by the railroad track, a rest in my poor tart feet. Nine hundred miles away from home, and all about to eat. 
Today's featured guest is Riley Boggess. Riley is a fantastic claw hammer banjoist and singer, and his style is so captivating that it has earned him performances and recordings with such folks as Tim O'Brien, Dirk Powell, Robert Plant, Alison Krauss, Willie Nelson, as well as the T-Bone Burnett-produced soundtrack for the film Cold Mountain. So he's been around the world quite literally and uh, has lived to tell the tale, and he tells a lot of these tales during this interview. So give a warm picky fingers welcome to Riley Boggess. My name is Riley Bogus. I'm from a little town in North Carolina called Walkertown. It's, uh-huh. it's very near Winston-Salem. Uh, I play in a style. My basic style is known as the round peak style because I spent a lot of time as a, as a young man uh, making my way up to, to Surrey County, which is Mount Airy, North Carolina, and it's about 30 minutes away. Uh-huh. Round Peak is a community in uh, Surrey County where people play in this style. Uh, and most of the people live either in Mount Airy or in the Round Peak community or somewhere between. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anyway, as a kid, I was, uh, I was always fascinated with it. I, I, loved, uh, I loved hearing what my family referred to as string music, you know, anything played on strings. Um, and I, I wanted to, I didn't have the best self-esteem as a kid. Okay. And I thought that if I, I, I saw the way they revered musicians and I thought people would treat me better if I played music, they would, they would think more highly of me. And what's the verdict after oh, it uh, didn't a few help. decades? <laughs> it didn't help. And, and typically now, if you find people who are, who are, you know, they don't have anything to do with you, but then they, they kind of decide that, oh, he's a musician. And then they start gushing over you. You kind of turn the other way really quickly, yeah, you know, yeah. cause you know, that's not the situation you want to find yourself in. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it helps you with your personal confidence. Yeah. And that's the thing. It, it helped me, it helped me strengthen my confidence and self-esteem. Something you thought you might be able to be good at. Right. Yeah. Cool. You know, you mentioned your family and what they referred to as string music. Were they musicians or music fans at least? Or They were music fans. My grandmother actually had a, a, a Victrola. It was a oh, freestanding wow. free Victrola cabinet with the, the turntable and the works up in the top and yeah. places to store the records in the bottom. And you open the doors because that's where the sound came out. Mm. You know, so your sound came out around your record storage, you know, yeah. and she and my grandpa had all these records of like Gid Tanner and the Skillet Lickers and Fiddlin' John Carson and the Red Fox Chasers uh, and Paul yeah. Miles, who was the banjo player in the Red Fox Chasers, was a family friend and lived in the community with my grandparents uh, up in Allegheny County, North Carolina, around Sparta, wow. out in the rural, rural part of, of Allegheny County. So they, you know, they had those records and my dad love to listen to uh, bluegrass and old time and country and blues and we had no rock and roll in our house hmm. I, I didn't gravitate toward toward listening to rock music until much later on you know? well like you said you wanted to be one of the cool kids so of that's course right. you're going to choose a banjo instead of rock and roll well, yeah I, well, I was, that's not that cool now i was really the cool kid i went to the i went to high school in the 80s in the 1980s and i had a i had a uh uh, 1980 Ford Pinto. 
<laughs> yeah. And that was, yeah, so, okay, that, that sets the cool factor for it yeah, right there. Yeah. Right. So I had a 1984 Pinto and all the other kids were running around blaring their, you know, Madonna and culture club and, uh-huh. and, and, uh, like, you know, queen and, and, and Michael and Jackson, or Michael Jackson <laughs> and the fix, you know, uh, and Pia Zadora, they were, they were blaring that out the windows of the car. And I was riding around campus blaring Tommy Gerald. Oh my God. Kid Tanner and the Skillet Liquors. I, that's quite an you know? image to, to think about. And I only that's had great. one speaker. So, you know. <laughs> the, I, the mono stuff that's was right. your friend. That's right. <laughs> that's you cool. Know? I didn't need stereo. It was all recorded in mono in the first place. So if you decided you wanted to be a musician, there's still another step in terms of like choosing the banjo specifically. You could have chose guitar or fiddle or well something I, in fact i did choose the fiddle okay. uh they my in the fifth grade at about 10 years old they start offering music programs in school mm-hmm. uh, and they so we had band and i decided i wanted to be a flute player and and my dad said boy you ain't playing no flute and i <laughs> said well okay just because that was a girl's instrument? Something. Yeah. I don't know okay. what his, his issue with it was, but he didn't want me to be a flautist. Okay. Um, but then they offered the strings program. And I said, well, I can learn to play the fiddle. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'll get you a fiddle. All right. You know, you can learn to play the fiddle. Yeah. Well, I soon discovered that, I mean, growing up as a, as a kid in an Appalachian and a Blue Ridge Mountain household, I didn't realize that you played any other music really on the fiddle except for country music, you know, okay. country music of some variety. But I soon discovered that Dvorak's Slavonic Dances is not what I had signed on for. Uh, and that's what they were trying to... Yeah, that was some of the first stuff. you toward in school. But then I did learn that Dvorak's Slavonic Dances were all folk tunes mm-hmm. from uh, Europe. So it kind of it kind of comes full circle that way. It wasn't completely but unrelated. Well, yeah. It wasn't yeah. completely unrelated, but was pretty much unrelated for a kid from Walkertown, North Carolina. Yeah, it wasn't what you uh, wanted. But then I, you know, but at the same time, at 10 years old, I, I had saved my money that summer. My, my dad used to bring home lawnmowers from work mm-hmm. and we would do points and condenser jobs. We'd do tune-ups. Yeah. And he would bring them home and in the summer I would fix them while he was at work. Okay. And he would give me the money. So sure. I saved my money one season when I was 10 years old and, and ordered a guitar out of the Sears Roebuck catalog. I did the old-time music thing, man, where you get your first guitar from Sears. Yeah, it's right of passage. That's right. So I ordered that, and it was just a terrible guitar. And then I decided I wanted a banjo at the same time. Hmm. And we really didn't have, we didn't have much money. And my dad was just was not going to buy me a banjo. So he said, boy, let's make you one. So we had the Foxfire book. We had the Foxfire oh, 3 yeah. that has all the instructions for banjos. We didn't really use the instructions, but we used we used the pictures a lot. Okay. And, and um, he and I took some scrap wood. It was just old flat pine three-quarter inch boards. Yeah. And he sawed out a neck. We kind of drew out a neck. And he laid it up next to that guitar from Sears and marked where the frets went with a pencil. Oh, wow. Then he took a hacksaw and sawed the fret slots. <laughs> Uh, and we went down to a local music store and got some fret wire and built that first banjo. Now, the sound chamber, he used half-inch plywood for the top and back, uh-huh. and he used a piece of, of plastic formable molding for the for the rim. So we just tacked that on to the two circles yeah. for the for the top and back. We didn't have sound hole technology figured out, right. you know, so it was kind of just a closed box. Uh-huh. And it sounded very much like an electric guitar with no amplifier. Right. But it worked. 
Yeah. And I learned to play my first tunes on that banjo. And he, he carved uh, out of a stick of stove wood with his pocket knife, he carved the tuning pegs. So wow, we, we made a banjo and that was my first banjo. And after I proved that I could play it, he then bought me an old K from the pawn shop. Okay. The the K was the step up banjo. Yeah, that was a step up banjo from what I was playing. Yeah. Incredible. So how did you, I mean, were you teaching yourself or did you have folks to play with? How how did you uh, improve? I was teaching myself largely at home, you know, listening to music and trying to copy it. And, you know, of course, like everybody else, you get a hold of books and 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 I was interested in Clawhammer and Scruggs style. And, you know, we listened to tons of Ralph Stanley and always heard Ralph claw hammering too, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and then we, we were, my folks were always big fans. When you live in the South at seven o'clock on Saturday night, you are watching Hee Haw. Okay. It didn't matter. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, every, everything stopped for Hee Haw. So, uh, you'd had string bean and you had, you had, uh, grandpa Jones, you had those guys playing claw hammer. Yeah. And, and one of the first records that I ever bought was Roscoe Holcomb. It was it, well. It was it was that Mountain Music of Kentucky on the Folkways label, and it was the picture, the one that with the picture that John Cohen had taken of Roscoe Holcomb standing in front of an old barn in his work clothes. Yeah, that famous photo that's and on the cover of all yeah, of this that stuff. Roscoe yeah. actually hated. Uh, really? Yeah, he didn't want to be seen like that. He he when he performed, he always dressed in a suit, okay. a suit and a nice hat, interesting and a tie. Uh, but John thought it would be great to put him in that sort of you know situation but which goes to show you that a lot of the things that we romanticize and take as as or take for granted are actually contrived situations to make Mm -hmm. us believe one thing or another Mm -hmm. um so just you know just have to be wary of what you're seeing you know don't trust exactly what you see think it through so so i was doing that and i had an uncle who was trying to learn to play three finger banjo, mm-hmm. and he was he was he was not great, but he was he was all right. You know, he could play a few tunes, and at ten years old, he would play with me. Yeah, you know, and I learned a few things from him, and just kept progressing, and and got started hanging out with folks who played music, other kids uh, that I went to school with, and one of them was a, a great fiddle player and banjo player, very well known now. His name's Kirk Sutphin. Uh, Kirk and I grew up together, and and we're making the trip up to Tommy Gerald's house, which is a half an hour away. Oh wow! But we were going okay. to hang out with Tommy Gerald at 15 years old. You know, I'd been playing for about five years when we started hanging out with Tommy. How old was Tommy at the time? I, I'm he was 80. He was about 82. Oh wow! 82. Okay, yeah. I, I figured he was up there. I sort of yeah was surprised that you two crossed paths at all. But maybe I, was I was one of the last groups of people who got to go and be part of of that whole sort of round peak thing as it was at that time one of the last people to get to go and and spend time with tommy and learn his tunes and stories and so i really man i i really want to pause here and dig way into this especially because for someone like me who's more or less a bluegrasser rather than an yep. old-time person yep. i hear the term round peak a lot as yep. a style I don't feel like I know how to identify that player as a round peak player. Well, um, so I'd love to hear you talk about that and also maybe what specifically you learned from Tommy. Well, all right. So, so round peak is a community in Stokes County or in uh, Surrey County. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that community, there's a, the people who live there who play music 
play with a specific drive. They play in a, with a specific feeling and a style. And there's a sort of a certain repertoire that they that they play. Tunes like John Henry and and uh, John Brown's Dream and Breaking Up Christmas and Sally Ann and Susan Anagal and Backstep Cindy, uh, mm-hmm. Forked Deer. Those are some of the tunes that are are just sort of the common tunes that you'll you'll play at any jam session, any any musical gathering. And they're all dance tunes mm-hmm. for the most part. And it's because the the Southern Appalachian square dancing, which, by the way, is done in big circles because we're geometrically challenged, um, <laughs> it is done regularly on Friday and Saturday nights. You know, you you can find a dance somewhere in that Blue Ridge Mountain, in the Blue Ridge area, you know, just every Friday or Saturday night. Wow, okay. And they still happen. Those dances still happen huh. in southwestern Virginia, northwestern North Carolina. Yeah. Great. But in terms of... so. I don't know, one, one of the tunes you said, I don't know, back up, Cindy. What do you perceive as the difference between how a round peak player, because it's not just round peak players that would play that right, tune. Right, right. What's the difference between well, how a round peak player would play it versus anybody else? Well, how about if I, how about if I give you an example? I would love it. All right. Yeah. Uh, I happen to have a banjo with me. This is John Henry. Now, this is John mm-hmm. Henry in the, in the uh, and we all kind of know, you know, the the regular John Henry that everybody hears in bluegrass music and and whatever, but this is sort of what they would call the old time John Henry and Tommy Gerald kind of played it like this, and it, we think of clawhammer banjo usually as a that's our basic strum the bum diddy the bum diddy or depending on where you where you're from diddy bum diddy bum okay. diddy bum all right it's the same rhythm reverse uh-huh. gives you a different perspective on where the beat is. Uh, when you when you go diddy bum, as opposed to bum diddy, you start feeling a gallop in the music because you're feeling the upbeat, you know. Yeah. Whereas bum diddy, you're always feeling the downbeat. Okay. All right. Yeah. So Tommy would would play often and use lower strings for the diddy instead of going diddy. He might go. Okay. So when he. So when he played John Henry, it came out sort of like this. So, so that's sort of a that's sort of a very round peak way of playing. We don't use big brushes for the most part. Okay. Uh, most of the the basic rhythm starts on the downbeat, even though the tunes will often start on the upbeat. Huh. Uh, but you you still want to think in terms of the downbeat. Yeah. Whereas in, up in southwestern Virginia, you get a you get a very different kind of of groove. You get sort of a. 
was uh, that's a tune called Train on the Island, which uh, Harry Smith included on the Anthology of American Folk Music okay. uh, by J.P. Nestor and, and uh, Uncle Norman Edmonds. But it's listed as J.P. Nestor. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely hear the difference. It's, it's a little tricky to describe what it is, but right. there, there's absolutely a, a rhythmic. Well, there is uh, nomenclature that, that would work, but it's, it gets extensive and just say, well, you know, one of them sounds like this and the other one doesn't, <laughs> yeah. you know, round peak sounds like this and other styles don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I could hear the difference. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what do you think if you, if you're able to describe what, overall you learned from someone like Tommy Gerald was it mostly tunes or what what do you view as like the the key parts of that type well, of education it goes so much deeper than that it's mm-hmm. it i mean yeah of course you learn the tunes you learn the repertoire but what he was really trying to convey and and, and i i feel that a lot of people have a mistaken equivalency here it, it, it Learning to play the music doesn't necessarily mean learning to put your fingers in exactly the same places as he did. Uh-huh. Learning to play the music is learning the music itself, the spirit of the music, the drive of the music, the emotion behind the music, um, the the history, and and thinking about all the the old people who he who Tommy himself had learned from since 1901. I mean, he was born in 1901. And in 1916, he started playing the banjo. His daddy made him a banjo, and he said he stained it with pokeberry juice, you know, yeah. uh, from poke pokeweed berries. And and it's oh, it's a terrible purple stain, but it goes brown in the sun, you know. Okay. So so uh, uh, his granddaddy said said when it, when his dad made gave him that banjo, he said, "Give him a banjo. You might as you just had better have given him a matic." Because he thought playing music was a waste of time. Huh, yeah. He wanted him to work, get him a mattock so he can dig in the ground and grub stumps uh-huh. and do something. Yeah. You know, playing music's not anything yep. in this old man's view. But Tommy Gerald's dad was a great fiddle player and banjo player too. So so he he sort of started Tommy off in that direction. And that's some of the stuff you, you got from Tommy was hearing those stories about how he learned to play and the mm-hmm. first tunes that he played and... And uh, the first tune he ever learned to play was Reuben. Okay. You know, you hear about all those old folks and, and Tommy's life and, and, and living, pre, you know, during the World War I up to the Great Depression in the 30s and, and then leading into World War II. Mm-hmm. And then the music changed drastically from 1920 to 1940 because you had the introduction of bluegrass then. Yeah. And you had WSM in Nashville, 6.50 a.m., just blaring across the country, clear channel. You know, everybody could hear the Grand Ole Opry. Mm-hmm. And they would listen to the Grand Ole Opry every Saturday night, and they got to hear Bill Monroe, mm-hmm. you know. And it changed the way old-time music was was played. You know, you Did can't it homogenize it. it a bit? Well, th- they started doing double-tag endings. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. Before bluegrass, when they got to the end of the tune, they just quit. They just stopped. <laughs> you know, but then they started doing endings. Yeah. You know, single tags or double tags. It changed some of the repertoire. Fiddling Arthur Smith... Uh, was a was a big star too, and and Fred Cockrum, who was one of our our local sources, our one of our revered players, mm-hmm. uh, Tommy Gerald's cousin, actually. They, uh, I, well, I believe that's right. I believe he's his cousin. Anyway, they played a lot of music together, mm-hmm. 
And and Fred wanted to be fiddling Arthur Smith, although he grew up being a round peak musician and playing that, you know, playing that round peak style and brought other tunes. He would go away and, and travel around to work camps and get a job as a musician yeah. playing at these work camps, take, you know, basically take tips or whatever, uh-huh. you know, to entertain the workers. Wow. At these you know, wood, you know, lumber camps, which were called punching camps or coal camps. He'd go up to West Virginia to where they were camped out mining coal. And and he would learn tunes from some of the musicians that were there and bring them back to, to Round Peak. That's how music traveled. Yeah. There was no, everybody didn't have a, you know, there were no flash drives or CDs. or Most people don't know what a CD is now. Though, you <laughs> no know. Spotify. Yeah, there's no Spotify. There's no streaming service whatsoever. You couldn't download a tune. Yeah. You know? What an interesting life that must yeah. have been to, to yeah. play around like that in those situations. And back in those days when you bought a record, you got two tunes. Because you bought the whole record and there was one on each side, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so, so that's, a, man, that's that's a, a really good quick survey of some of that history. But um, is there something that you started to develop that you might now identify as like your personal style? Or what kind of things do you do that maybe took that tradition well, and... and carried it forward well, a little I, bit? When I play Clawhammer banjo, no matter what I'm... What I, what style of music I'm approaching, if I'm playing it in Clawhammer, I'm I'm still visualizing Tommy Gerald's hands. Oh wow! I still see his hands, and I still see, I still see his slides and his 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 double notes or his you know strike pull off replace kind of thing. Uh-huh. We call that a double note. Uh, I, I see one specific technique that we use a lot. Uh, people refer to it as the Galax lick, even though. It's similar to a technique used in the Galax, Virginia style of music, mm-hmm. but it, it's 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 kind of uh, specific to Round Peak. Okay. Um, and uh, let me play you this tune called John Brown's Dream. Yeah, great. This this is largely what I learned from Tommy by sitting and watching him and listening to him and 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 just learning to play music. I mean, the specific techniques. I learned basically everything that I do on the Clawhammer banjo in this tune. Oh wow! You know, so it's kind of it's going to start out like this. apart for us you said it was that that everything you yeah. all the skills you have i forget yeah. how you put a, it but lot, it's all in that tune most of oh. what i do is in this tune all right so so the whole thing starts out with that galax lick or the uh-huh. it's it's a it's actually an arpeggio it's and using the 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 point is to start with a note on the first string 
and then use the fifth string as melody notes rather than yeah. playing the, f- the fifth fret of the first string. You actually use the fifth string. So, and then there's the pull-off. We get lots of notes with pull-offs. Sure. You know, lots of notes and, and uh, you know, rhythmic value. You get rhythmic value and, and melodic value at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then we're going we're gonna to go up the scale with more pull-offs and brushes and thumbs. Now, Tommy didn't do usually big brushes. The brushes that he did were usually first and second fret or first and second string. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, I, a lot of my style comes from other players in the area, but but sitting with Tommy, you get to see it and hear it in action, you yeah. know? Um, I mean, of course, I, I was spending time with other players. I, I was making music with a, a couple of great friends, Paul Brown, of NPR yeah, fame. Sure. Uh, he lived in the community, so we played a lot of music. And his his wife, Terry McMurray, yeah. Terry McMurray and Kirk Sutphin and I were in a band together called the Old Hollow String Band. And we were spending as much time at Tommy Gerald's house as we possibly could. Wow. And in the area playing music, you know, with yeah. either Robert Sykes and Benton Flippin or Ernest East, you know, lots of the old old players, uh, Verlin Clifton and uh, 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 Frank Bodie. Uh, lots of great players from the area. We, we were spending as much time with them as we could. So you're you're getting these things from other folks. Sure. Um, but still, I'm visualizing how Tommy would do it. What would Tommy do? WWTD, <laughs> you know? Um, and then he did this little thing where he would go. It's the same kind of little Galax lick. Right. But you're, you're doing the arpeggio at the seventh fret. And then another pull-off there. So we've got... And then he did this cool little thing that is really sort of bluesy. And that, and that's one of the things that I, that I feel about the Round Peak style is it has a lot of blues, blues-ish licks. And he would do this thing where it's a slide... A drop thumb in that technique. So you start out with a slide on the second string and then a fifth string. Then you go first string, drop thumb to another slide. Yeah, it's quite an interesting syncopation that that creates. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I the, another of the players that was very influential was Fred Cockrum, and then he would add in this part. Okay. All right. Now, different players would approach the, the next part of the tune very differently. Tommy, in more of the old style, would go... Or something similar to that. I'm not. I, I'm not going to say that I'm playing specifically what Tommy did, but I, I'm. I, I'm. Have, I have that feeling, uh-huh. and that's the thing that I got from from hanging with him was the spirit of the music, how the music feels, specific techniques, but not necessarily exactly what he did. We're not Xerox copies, you sure, know. We're not. Sure. We're not 
to say that you play exactly like someone, I don't think anybody really does. Mm -hmm. You can play very, very <clears throat> close to the way someone plays, but you're still a you. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. and yeah. you and your self-expression, your artistic expression is going to come through in that music. And, you, and everybody misremembers. Sure. You know? Yeah. I, you come to people, oh, I learned this from Tommy Gerald. I played exactly like him. Well, no, no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> and even Tommy Gerald would say when he played John Brown's Dream, by, by God, I play this just the way I learned it off of my daddy. Well, that's exactly right. You play it the way you learned it from your dad, not exactly the way your dad played yeah. it. Yeah. Folk music is a big game that's of telephone. Absolutely. In that way. Yep. Absolutely. Hey folks, Keith here, just taking a quick break from the episode, but I'll be right back with the rest of it. I did just want to mention that if you are looking to have your dream banjo built, or if you just need some of the top quality components to add to a project or an existing banjo, I couldn't recommend anyone more than Sullivan Banjos. Sullivan has been one of the top names in the banjo industry for decades. And Eric Sullivan down in Alabama brings all that experience and adds his personal customized touch to make sure that you are getting the banjo of your dreams. Whether you are looking for a tried and true traditional design, or if you want to get a bit more uh, imaginative, chances are if you can dream it, Eric can build it. I know that's true because I've been playing my own Sullivan custom banjo since 2004. So give Eric Sullivan at Sullivan Banjos a call at 502-365-5022. Visit them on the web at sullivanbanjo.com or email at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com. Now, once you have that Sullivan Banjo in your hands, the best way to learn it that I recommend is with Peghead Nation's online streaming video courses. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out some of these banjo classes that they offer. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. All of these courses are going to include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play-along tracks, and plenty of songs to play along with. Now, the best part is that just for being a Picky Fingers listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout. Once again, pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS to get your first month free. And folks, another sponsor of the show and one of my favorite places on earth is Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. Now, I worked there for about 10 years and it's still where I go for all my banjo, guitar, and any other string instrument needs. So that should really tell you something. Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and has grown to become the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. So whether you are looking for your first beginner instrument or that hard-to-find vintage collectible, Elderly is going to have that, and they are also going to back it up with the best customer service in the business. So head over to Elderly.com to see their full inventory online. They ship worldwide, by the way. Or give them a call at 517-372-7880.
Talk about your something I noticed in that piece as well as uh, when you played John Henry. You seem to have a way with your slides as well that almost mimics like a fretless banjo. So there's something about them that's just a little smoother than I usually hear. What's uh, well, what's with that? I can explain that. Yeah. And the reason for that is because I used to play pretty much exclusively fretless. Mm-hmm. But the round peak style was always and still is a fretless style. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with what some of my friends refer to as the speed bumps or the frets, <laughs> you know? So if they got a factory-made banjo, they would pull out the first pull out the first six frets, and from the seventh fret down to the nut, they would put on a piece of metal of some kind. I've seen those, yeah. Or a piece of formica. Uh, Kyle Creed was a banjo maker who would start out with formica fingerboards. Yeah. You know, and and just something real hard and smooth. Yeah, something yeah. hard and smooth, and you'll never wear the you'll never wear it out. Sure. I mean, I have seen where they would take galvanized tin roofing and cut a strip out of it and then make ears on the sides and then tack it to the sides oh. of, the, of, the, of the fretboard and then turn it into a fretless thing. Yeah. Because until, I always say that, that fretted banjos didn't start being a thing until around the 1870s, but Pete was telling me that, or Pete Ross, not Pete Stanley, Pete Ross was telling me that there was a manufacturer in the eighteen mid-1850s who made a few banjos with frets, but it didn't really become a thing until the 1870s. Mm-hmm. Because up until then, the the whole minstrelsy period, people were playing the five-string banjo in a fretless way, but they were playing full chords, and you had to be a virtuosic player to be able to, yeah, to hit those notes dead yeah. on every time, especially if you're playing a chord. Of course. Um, but with frets, you just have to get your fingers in the right positions, yeah. not necessarily on the notes. Yeah. You know, So it made the banjo a lot easier to play. Uh-huh. And there are people who will disagree with the fact that the banjo got easier once they got frets, but <laughs> <laughs> some parts of it got some easier. Some parts of yeah. it got a lot easier, right? Cool. Yeah. So, so what? Are, I mean, back to your slides. What? Yeah. What is? Uh, how? How could how, someone make their slides more well, fretless? There you go. So when I when I play fretless banjo, I roll my fingers up onto the onto the front edge and play with my fingernails. Oh wow. So, I'm getting sort of a bottleneck effect. Yeah. Um, so I'm 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 playing all the fretted notes with the pad, but then all the slid notes, the slide notes, I'm doing on the on my fingernail. Interesting. Um, and and I, e- even on of, the wound string, yeah, that still works. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's it's. Noticeable, yeah. That's, it, it that's gives quite you, an effect. And you, you don't really hear the frets that much that way. Exactly. You're, you're sliding across it. You're getting sort of a string effect. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like a sitar, I guess. You know. Yeah, it has that extra like weird harmonic yeah. thing happening. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you are pressing down lighter when you do that in order to? glide over the frets yeah i don't don't press that hard anyway the the whole idea with the frets is that you you're just stopping the string Mm -hmm. as long as you you stop the string against the fret you don't have to push the string all the way down to the wood Mm -hmm. Uh, and that i teach a lot of people and and they all have these these death grips you know they're trying to press that string as hard as they can and getting down to the wood and you don't you don't actually have to touch the wood 
In fact, you'll probably be out of tune if you do. Yeah, yeah you stretch the string. Uh-huh. Um, but with, with the slides, you're just gliding right over the top. So you yeah. get that you get that nice little slidey thing, a little like I said, it's just like bottleneck or slide guitar, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, can, and, I can hear that. And yeah. there there were people who you know there was a there was a player back in the twenties. His name was Doc Walsh, who actually would put pennies under the bridge of his banjo and play slide with his pocket knife. He'd use his pocket knife as a slide. Oh, cool! So he would but get, raise the action with yeah, the pennies. Well, and it gave it gave it that that metallic sound. So because the sound was Does transferring it? into the oh, head, interesting through the pennies. And it and it uh, it just it gave it sort of a metally kind yeah. of resonatory sound, you know. Interesting. Or like a resonator guitar, you know. Yeah. Cone. Yeah. It gave it a cone sound because it had it was transferring through the metal yeah, into the into the skin. So yeah. interesting. Uh, so I know this is probably skipping forward a lot, but we're feel like we could be here for hours talking well, about this stuff. I've been doing this for 47 years, so, you know, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, you Well, you, you mentioned as we were as we were walking in some of your involvement with some uh, film work and with T-Bone Burnett. I would love to hear maybe how you got involved in that and what your experience was like, because I think that's quite a unique thing for, for banjo players to be in that kind of situation or environment. It was pretty cool, I have to say. Yeah. Um, well, let me start with the fact that I was a, my profession was a welder and blacksmith for uh-huh. almost 20 years. Okay. Uh, and I was working uh, at a welding shop that I'd been at for 18 years. And we, I was in uh, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, working at the Museum of the Albemarle, putting up hand railing mm-hmm. that we had manufactured or we'd, we'd fabricated in our shop. And I was out installing the handrail. Uh, five hours away from the house is in this desolate place in North Carolina during the time of analog cell phones. And I had one bar in one place on this job site. And I had my phone laid there in case my boss was calling. Uh-huh. All right. The phone rang and I ran and grabbed it and picked it up. And it was Dirk Powell on the other end. Uh-huh. And Dirk said, hey, man, I'm out here in L.A. with Anthony Minghella and T-Bone Burnett. And I was telling him how cool it would be to have banjos made in North Carolina in this film that we're doing, Cold Mountain. Uh-huh. Can you send them one to look at? And I said, sure I can, because I'm a banjo maker. Yeah. Uh, so Yeah, and I want to cover a bit of that too, but so, we'll put a pin in it. Yeah, yeah put a pin right there. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was making banjos, and he he told them, he liked my banjos and said, man, I want to get you involved, so send him a banjo. So I sent him a banjo, and they liked it. They contacted me and said, can you make, the prop master contacted me and said, can you make three exactly alike, circa 1850? And But they have to look homemade, sort of, as they're described in the book. And I said, well, sure. I didn't know whether I could or not, but I said, yeah, you bet I can. Yeah, yeah, the answer uh, so, is yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I came up with a price and gave them a price and, and made three banjos exactly alike. And those were the ones that you see in the film. And it's for on screen. Yeah. That's really cool. And they called, and they, but they had to be playable. Because we wanted to use those banjos on the sound, or T-Bone wanted to use one of those banjos on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they're, the sound chamber's made pretty much exactly like mine. So it's they sounded kind of like that, except with gut strings. Yeah. He didn't really like the sound of the gut strings. He liked the steel string better. 
So anyway, they they called me a couple of weeks later and said they needed somebody to be the the ballad singer, the 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 vocal part of Pangle, the character Pangle. Mm-hmm. So I was Pangle's singing voice. The actor was Ethan Suppley. So when his mouth moves, it's my voice coming out <laughs> when he's singing. Reverend, and this part belonged to a horse. Ruby said, "What is it? I should pray or nay, depending." You don't you don't know what he's saying. You got a mind no bigger than a pickle wall knot. Is a good cow. <laughs> I wish I wish my baby was born and sitting on its papa's knee and me poor girl and me poor girl were dead and gone and the green grass And that was very cool. Now yeah. I got to play some of the some banjo on the in the film. Dirk Powell played most of the banjo, but I, I played banjo on some of the some of the passing music, the 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 under music, you know, under scenes or whatever you yeah. call it. Yeah, or music under scenes, you know, sort of the support music behind some of the scenes. I got to play some banjo and some of that. Yeah. Um, but that was it was a great experience, and that opened a lot of doors. And and T Bone liked what I do, what I do, and and uh, he he liked my singing, he liked my play, and he loved the sound of the banjo. Uh, and he called me back to do some other projects later. Uh, we got to go out on a tour for about three months mm-hmm. uh, after when Cold Mountain came out, and it was sort of sort of an inclusive tour of uh, the musicians from Oh Brother Where Art Thou and the soundtrack to the film Cold Mountain. So it was Allison Krauss and Ralph Stanley and the Cox family and the Nashville Bluegrass Band and and uh, Dirk Powell, Tim Erickson, and myself. Is that the Songs from the Mountain? Is that what that was called? Or am I thinking well, of just the O'Brother thing? That, well, that, uh, songs, songs from the Mountain was Dirk Powell, Tim O'Brien, and John Herman. Okay. They put, it was a companion recording they put out with the... Uh, with oh well the the songs songs from the mountain was the tour for oh brother where art thou okay yeah uh, uh, but there's a, a companion recording that came out that that Dirk and Tim O'Brien and John did that was sort of a companion to the book you know when Cold Mountain first came out all right all right so uh, and that's how Dirk got the gig is because Charles Frazier was playing that CD for. Uh, Anthony Mangella as they were driving through Haywood County, North Carolina, looking at Cold Mountain. And uh, so that music's playing, and, and Anthony said, well, that's the music I want in my film. So they got Dirk to be the Dirk, musical yeah. coordinator. And then Dirk called me, mm-hmm. uh, and that opened up a lot of doors. And it, I guess as backstory, you and Dirk had collaborated uh, a decent amount Dirk before I, this time. Yeah, Dirk and I had been friends uh from the time we were teenagers, he was oh, wow. about, so I was probably 17 or about 17, 18 when I met Dirk and he was 15, 16, something okay. like that. We were in our, we were, we were in our teens when we started playing music together. I guess I don't know too much about him. I always associate him with like New Orleans, but, uh, I, I didn't realize yeah, that you two well, had that. Well, he married, uh, Christine Balfa. He married Dewey Balfa's daughter. And, okay. and so he learned to play Cajun fiddle and Cajun accordion. He's one of the world's best Cajun accordion players. Yeah, great. Um, uh, 
but he's he has old time roots because he, his family's from Kentucky, from mm-hmm. East Kentucky, and his grandfather was a musician, and so so uh, he and I, you know, we we always we we you know water seeks its own level, and sure. w- we dug the same music, yeah, and and understood the the deepness and the spirit of the music. And, and that be, making carbon copies of everything you learned was not playing the music. That was playing the tunes, but that's not playing the music. Yeah. You know, if you, if you know what I mean. I, mean, I think you, so. You're getting yeah. down to more of, a, more of a fiber of the music thing, the fiber that makes the cloth rather than the cloth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, I hear you. Yeah. Talk a little, how much did you work directly with T-Bone? Was he producing the sessions that you personally recorded yeah yeah he he produced the whole cold mountain thing and then he called me back later for some projects like the uh, 2009 we did uh, a, a record with willie nelson called country music so i'll keep drinking champagne feeling no pain till early morning and Russell Paul on steel guitar and Buddy Miller uh, on Telecaster and Jim Lauderdale and uh, Ronnie McCurry. Oh, yeah. Chris cool. Sharp. Uh, yeah. Chris Sharp, who actually is who is the guy you hear playing the guitar on Man of Constant Sorrow in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh-huh. That's Chris Sharp playing the guitar. Everybody thinks is it's Dan it? Tominsky, but it's not. Wow. Uh, it's Chris Sharp playing the guitar and Dan Tominsky singing. Yeah. So, so Chris, Chris was, Sharp is a great singer too. Yeah, yeah, he is a great singer, great guitar player, and he was part of that session. And uh, Dennis Crouch played bass, and yeah, and Stuart band. Duncan was the fiddle player. Wow, it was a pretty fun band. You yeah, know? That's and a great and group. all those guys understand old time music too. Mm-hmm. And Willie was saying that his grandfather was a banjo player, so he was. I I was sitting as close as me to you, and we're six feet apart. Uh-huh. You know, with with Willie in the in the studio, and we hung out for days and days and days making this record, and you know, oh, telling cool. stories, listening to his stories, and making music, and and uh, had a really good time. Yeah, he that's would turn great. to me occasionally and go, Riley, why don't you kick this one off? And of course, I wasn't nervous about that at all. <laughs> no, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Thanks, Willie. Um, yeah, so that was a pretty big time. But then he called me later to do the Robert Plant and Allison Krauss recording, the Raising Sand album. Yeah, so I was that on recording. that. Yeah. Uh, it won a few Grammys. And uh, so got have been part of a lot of great projects. And I, I just can't believe how lucky I've been being a Clawhammer banjo player from Walkertown, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. You know, better pinch yourself, or maybe I, I not. Do. Stay. <laughs> I do occasionally, just to make sure that it's real. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. What do you attribute, or to what do you attribute T-Bone's notoriety or success? Because I, I feel like some people maybe question what he actually does. He seems to just collect songs that are already out there, and um, I don't, I don't know if it's clear what he. Well, it's do you know hard, what I'm kind of getting at? It's, like, it's, what what is it about to, him that is uh, the glue that yeah, it's kind of makes the magic to, happen. It's kind of hard to question his resume. You yeah. know, all the projects that he's done that have been super successful, 
Uh, the day we started recording the Cold Mountain soundtrack uh-huh. was the day that Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack had sold its eight millionth copy. Okay. You know, it's like, well, you so know, that's, that's e- easy to be optimistic about something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. We were all pretty excited thinking yeah. Cold Mountain would probably be another Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because hmm. that was kind of the vibe, you know, but it's kind of, it's kind of hard to sell a, an anti-war movie right at the beginning of a war. That's right when we when we started the whole Iraq thing, you know. Yeah, compared um, to Oh Brother, what are, are we talking like three or four years? Or yeah, something yeah. Like two thousand two thousand three is when Cold Mountain came out. Okay, and Oh Brother was like two thousand two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but uh, it, I tell you what makes it success is he doesn't try and overproduce. Mm-hmm. He doesn't try and make it too big. He he goes for he likes simple sounds he likes simple music, um, and often we would do two takes of something, and the first track would be the one that got chosen because wow. it's, it's organic. Yeah. It feels real. He likes real music. Yeah, you know, and that's that's uh, that. And if you listen to the things that he chooses, the people he when he he draws uh, old recordings into his films. You hear people like Charlie Feathers. You hear Roy Orbison. You hear, uh, you know, like like uh, there's a scene in uh, Walk the Line where where uh, Joaquin Phoenix and and Reese Witherspoon are sitting in a diner, and you hear music on the on the jukebox in the background, and it's Charlie Feathers. Hmm. Charlie Feathers was one of those old rockabilly guys. He was he was like the million dollar quartet fifth wheel yeah okay and apparently he the stories i've heard he had such a bad attitude that he kind of vibed himself out of his success okay but he was part of that whole jerry lee lewis elvis presley johnny cash uh, carl perkins thing at sun recordings yeah and and he was quite popular as a rockabilly guy and just and country musician and just vibed himself out of it but t-bone likes that kind of music he like he listens to the old music he likes he likes old things he likes he likes really rootsy sounding simple music yeah and when i say simple i don't mean I, I don't mean that it's easy music to play it's it's accessible it's accessible exactly yeah. thank you yeah, yeah so maybe he just has a, a keen ear for what might be accessible to a yeah. lot of that's, uh, the that's mass right. of people and that's okay. and, and I he, think that's a good way to and he's good describe. at helping his musicians figure out what they need to be feeling when they're playing a specific thing, hmm. working on the Robert Plant and Alison Krauss thing, we did a track that was uh, we were doing Roscoe Holcomb's version of Little Maggie. Okay, and they were going to get Robert Plant to sing it, and we were playing it, and and I hear Roscoe Holcomb in my head playing this thing. Of course. So I'm trying to play his, I'm trying to play as close to to Roscoe as I possibly can, uh, and he was doing a two finger thing, you know, with it. And and so I I had sat in a room for about three days with Norman Blake and learned this thing, you know, as note for note as I could. And I kept playing it at his tempo. And T-Bone didn't really want that feel and that tempo. He wanted that sound, but not that vibe. So he came in and he, he gave me this, he gave me this direction. He, he said something like, all right, man, you know, imagine yourself, you've just robbed a joint. You know, and you're the cops are around the corner and you're you're hanging out and you can see them and you're hiding behind that corner of a building <laughs> and you can see them coming and they're going to get you. Unless you stay hidden, you know, and it's like, that's the vibe I want you to have, <laughs> you know, so it's like, OK, you have to I translate can, that into. 
Yeah. Playing. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, you want that kind of feeling. It's it's a little bit fearful, desperate, yet quiet. Wow. You know? And so we worked it out that way. How interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's quite a challenging direction, but yeah. <laughs> oddly specific at the same time. Well, yeah. And but I knew exactly what he meant. Uh-huh. I mean, he he conveyed exactly what he wanted to hear in that little <laughs> in that little description. You know? Oh, how interesting! Yeah, yeah. it was really fun. I, I've had a man. If it all stopped today, I've had a great time. You know, I've got great projects in the works. Yeah, got, I hope it does. Lots for, of things for all going of our on, sakes, yeah. and and I'm I'm just I'm just really uh, just really lucky and really really blessed and honored to be in the position I'm in. Yeah, I'm honored just to be hearing about it. These are great <laughs> stories. I love it. So let's talk more about, uh, I guess we should move to to your banjos, either the, the personal one that you use all the time and maybe your banjos in general. Well, I started building banjos in 1995, mainly because I couldn't afford to buy a good banjo. I had I had kind of, you know, junky banjos and... and um, I, a friend of mine worked for the facility in town where they they collected all the old pallets and all the timber, you know, the limbs and stuff on the sides of the street, and they'd bring it there to grind it up into mulch. Mm-hmm. And I had talked to him about sometime maybe wanting to build a banjo. Well, this guy's name was Charlie Joe Sutphin, and Charlie Joe was sort of an innovative fella, and he saw these uh, this machinery pallet that had, it was a 10-foot-long machinery pallet, it had two walnut and one cherry, four by four, 10 feet long. Oh, wow. And he grabbed those. That's a lot of banjo necks. He grabbed those four <laughs> by fours and we put them in the barn loft for about six months. Uh-huh. And I said, well, yeah, I got nothing to lose. It's free wood. It was going to get ground into mulch anyway. So it takes a lot of the pressure off messing up if you do. Yeah. And so I started building banjos and I built myself one and then built another. You know, I, I, I was using the uh, Stuart McDonald pot kit, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so I got their I got their rim and their head and their tension hoop and tone ring configuration and everything and was building necks because the neck was the first thing I wanted to conquer. So I built a I built a fretted one to begin with, a fretless one second. And then I wanted to experiment making my own rims because I felt like I'm not really making the banjo if I'm not making the whole thing. Yeah. So then I, I figured out how to make rims i made my working in a welding shop i had access to lots of metal uh, and rolling equipment to roll the the parts to make the forms i got a hold of that roger Semenoff book uh, constructing a five-string banjo which is all about building a bluegrass banjo or or not a bluegrass but that's a misnomer it's not a bluegrass it's a resonator banjo banjo, There, there was no such thing as a bluegrass banjo before Earl Scruggs and Bill Monroe got together. Before that, it was just a resonator banjo yeah. versus an open back. Uh-huh. It's not meant to play specifically bluegrass music on. So all you bluegrass musicians, don't get mad. <laughs> no, I've, I've seen, it's historic. I've seen Kathy Barton play mm. amazing stuff on a resonator banjo that was not bluegrass. So. Absolutely. Yeah, so so then I, I started building my own rims and... and uh, um, started, I would go out to, to festivals and parties and things and people would say, Hey, I need, I want, Oh, I love that banjo. I want to get you to build me one. And I'd go, well, this one's for sale. 
Yeah. So I sold several of them before I, I decided, okay, look. Just I, right I, out of your hands, yeah, basically. I, and then I would go home without a banjo, you know? <laughs> so I go, well, okay, I've got to build one that I'm going to keep. And I had a rim that came off of the wheel that I, I had a, I had basically a, 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 a sort of a tapered plywood wheel that was 10 inches in diameter that fit inside an 11 inch rim. So it, since it was tapered, it didn't matter if it was exactly 10 inches inside, I could get it stuck onto yeah. this wheel and it was attached to a grinder motor, okay. to an electric motor. Well, I had one that came off the wheel one day and it hit my floor, the floor in my shop has a, uh, is dirt. Uh-huh. And it hit a piece of gravel and took a big chunk out of the side. And okay. I said, okay, I'm saving that one for myself. Yeah, and that's the, the best Im- sounding, that's the best sounding banjo I've made out of all the banjos <laughs> I ever made. And it's not this one. It's, it's I was one. just going to ask. Let me see the, yeah, I want to see the no, gouge. It's, it's the one that I have at home that we used on Cold Mountain and, and the Willie record and the Robert Plant and Allison Krauss thing uh, and a lot of other independent films and stuff. It's the one that I used most of the time. And I, I don't take it out of the house much anymore. Because I don't, I'd hate for something to happen to it now. You know, this yeah. one, this one I just built in uh, 2019, just okay. right before the beginning, uh, August of 2019, right before the pandemic. Um, so it's it's only that old, you know. So suffice to say that even from the get go, you said you were playing junky banjos until then. Like even your first ones, were they a pretty good step up from what you were used to at the time? Oh yeah, 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 cool. yeah. The the ones that I was building were sounding great compared to what I mean. I'd played a lot of those old sort of you know turn of the century, turn of the twentieth century banjos that had been sold at Sears and Montgomery Ward that mm-hmm. were just a, a piece of oak with spun over nickel or spun over brass, you uh-huh. know, uh, on the, on them. And they, they didn't really sound that great. Yeah. You know, some of them did, but the ones I had did not. They're not what you we know? would consider like a professional, no. uh, instrument. Man. No, 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 no. Cool. They weren't like the, the Vega or like the white ladies, the Fairbanks and Coles, the, uh, you know, the Paramounts yeah. or the, or the, you know the the Orpheums or anything. They weren't like the the good turn of the century banjos. They were like the ones you'd buy at Sears. Yeah, yeah. You know for sure. And they were meant to be that. They were meant to be banjos for the average guy to play and be able to afford because mm-hmm. you can get them for three or four dollars. Yep, the entry level ones. Yeah. Uh, so, do you tend to build with a lot of the typical options that we see in old time, like different tone rings, or like what what's the range of what you tend to do well I, I when i was started starting to build banjos i thought i had to be a custom builder mm-hmm. and i am not good at building other people's art uh i don't take it well uh, and i don't do it well <laughs> um i got into building banjos because i liked building banjos and i still do uh but i quit for a long time because everybody wanted me to build their art and that's not what I was into. And they were all wanting their banjo. Where's my banjo? Why haven't you finished my banjo? And it's like, it's too much stress. I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it so that people have a good banjo and I get the joy of building the banjo. Uh-huh. It's, it's not for me to make my living, you know? Sure. Uh, and I have a long waiting list right now of people who've requested banjos. And I'm trying to fill those orders, but the world has opened up again and I'm out you know, teaching and performing and, and teaching online and, and, yeah. you know, uh, trying to keep all that, that ball rolling 
uh, yeah, you're as just well telling me shop. what the last four or five or six weeks in a yeah. row you've been at. Yeah, uh, I've been all at music, over the country, yeah. music camps, and out doing performance gigs, and and doing banjo camps, and mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it's pretty busy. So so I kind of turned the 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 key on the door to the shop there for a while for several years, and said no, I'm not doing this. And then I got back into it with with the the idea that okay, I'm setting the rules. I'm building banjos as I get them, as I get them, as I build them. If you'd like to buy one, it's for sale. I do a couple of specific styles. I do a, an 11-inch or a 12-inch. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this one has sort of a livery. Uh, uh, I call it the Dark Star. It's some variety of wood for either the the rim and the neck. Like I, I like to use maple for a rim and cherry for a neck. Mm. Um it, the whole thing is black stained. The rim is stained black. The neck is stained black. There's an ebony fingerboard that's black. And I used black mother of pearl for the inlays. Um, and it I, is very cool looking. Well, I sawed out a star for the fifth fret because I like to use a star for my fifth fret marker. Uh-huh. And I, I saw that black mother of pearl and went, man, that's a dark star. And this little bell went off in my head. And I went, oh, dark star. Yeah. Huh. Maybe my deadhead friends need one of these banjos. <laughs> of course. You know? So uh, I built I built the first one. This was the first model, and I built several of them after because people saw it and liked it. I was talking to a friend, Bob Smackula, up in West Virginia, and describing the banjo I was building. And uh, he said, hey, he said, I've got some of these new heads that Remo makes called Suede. He said, they come in black. Yeah. I said, okay, send me one. And it turns out it's the nicest head for the way, for the sound that I like that Remo makes. That's lu- a lucky uh, it, it coincidence turn, there. Yeah, yeah, I tried the head and it's like, man, these sound so good. It sounds so good. I switched my other banjos to him. Yeah, so, very cool. Yeah. So so basically, you you have kind of your your model, the eleven inch, twelve inch, yep. and that's inch. what people are going to get. <laughs> yep. You get you get the standard sort of Rally Bogus that's a maple rim and a cherry neck, uh, stained somewhat to match. And they all have a, a hand rubbed French polish finish. Mm-hmm. The the tone ring is the same in all of them. It's a three sixteenths brass rod. I don't mind telling you, my tone rings come from the Home Depot a lot of the time. Huh? You know? Wow. I mean, it's or your local hardware store, or if if I order in bulk, I order from a, a, you know an online metal supplier. But yeah. but um, it, and then just roll them into circles. It's not. It's people put so much sort of dependence in the tone ring Mm -hmm. and for a claw hammer banjo the tone ring when you use just a round rod it doesn't make that much difference Hmm. you know it gives you a solid surface for the head to rest on and it transfers the sound into the rim into the wooden rim it's the construction of the rim the how much pressure's in the wood itself when it's all clamped and glued together have you treated the wood with heat before uh how thin is are your walls Uh, you know is it do you have voids in your where you laminate oh, wow. it, you yeah, know, right. there's all kinds of things that, that go into making a good rim. Is it good wood to start with? All wood sounds different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you can't, you don't, I mean, you don't know if that rim's going to sound good when you choose that wood. You can only go on past experience and say, well, that, you know, that looks like that wood I made yeah. those, that really good run with. So yeah, I'll use that, you know. Yeah. Just, but it's still just an educated guess. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Cool. So yeah, there are a couple of models uh, and I choose the inlays. I'm not a I'm not an inlay artist. I have some nice inlay patterns that 
that work. Yeah. <laughs> no, it looks it looks very cool. It's it's well, not thank you. Thank overly you. elaborate, but it's it's sleek and yeah. Yeah, because you know nice. more inlay always makes a banjo sound better. Everyone knows that. Yeah, yeah. right. The, yeah. the higher price tag. That's right. That's the that's best right. sounding one. That's right. Well, uh, man, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, but we do have uh, places to get to here here at camp. But um, I think I do have two more quick questions. Ask me. What what would be you, you've had so many different phases of your career. If someone's just discovering your music for the first time, is there a recording of yours that you're particularly proud of that best displays your banjo? And and we didn't even talk about your singing. You're an, a fantastic singer. Oh, so thank you. Thank what, you. what would you steer people toward to well, I, you know, I have a, listen to you? My, my favorite recording that I've produced, I, I mean, I've, I've done records for many years, I, you know, solo recordings, and I have, I have one on the Sugar Hill label that was called Long Steel Rail. Tim O'Brien produced that one. Um, but the one I did just before the pandemic, and, and uh, just a note to all you performers out there, d- releasing a new CD just at the beginning of a global pandemic is not the best financial uh, decision okay. you can make. It's kind of hard to get rid of them when there's nowhere to sell them. All right. But, <laughs> financial advice <laughs> right. with, with Riley Boggess. That's right. From a clawhammer banjo player. I don't know if you want to take much of that financial advice. But... Uh, no, so I, I have this new recording, and and it actually, and, and you know, everybody says it. Oh, this is my favorite one, but th- no, this really is my favorite recording. I've I've got a lot of solo banjo and singing, and various styles of 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 old time music from across the Blue Ridge, but there's some other stuff too. There's some more modern type pieces. Um, one of my favorites is a song that was written by Ben Nichols called "Last Pale Light in the West." Dark clouds gather around me, due northwest, my soul is bound, I will go on ahead free, there's a light yet to be found, it's the Lucero. Uh, so I feel like I'm doing very much the same thing as the old guys I learned from. They'd hear a song on the radio and incorporate it into the yeah. Appalachian tradition. Well, I'm, I'm kind of hearing songs that I like and doing them too. Yeah, I've you heard know? you do that song. That, that's a good one. Good, good recommendation there. And then finally, where do people find out about either you and your performances and your recordings or you and your banjos maybe it's all in, in one place on the web you could well banjos you can contact me through my email link that you can find on my website okay. which is rileybogusbanjos.com yeah wonderful all right well thanks again riley really appreciate you uh being so generous with your time and your and your stories and your demonstration well thanks appreciate keith it. i don't know if you can tell but i enjoy talking <laughs> I've had a really good time. You know, I, I'm I'm lucky that I get to interview banjo players about banjos. They tend to, uh, yeah, it, t- it tends to be just a, a an easier 
an easier thing than maybe a confrontational interview of some well, sort. So, I was never one to kind of geek out over banjos. I mean, I, I have uh-huh. lots of friends who are into, well, you know, oh, man, I've got a 1903 whatever with the hootie hoo and the hottie high and the <laughs> number 17 special whatever. And, and it's like, oh, boy, that's nice. You know, and, and I have guitar friends. I play guitar as well. And, mm-hmm. and I have guitar friends who kind of do that thing. They geek out over the specific models and they go, what have you got? And I go, well, man, mine's got six strings on it. <laughs> yeah. You know? You know? Some, some frets here and there, yeah, maybe. Banjo's got five strings. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, thanks again. And right been on, a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, folks. That's going to do it for this interview and this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. You heard some sound clips in this episode, and they were Danville Girl by Riley Boggus, Whistlin' Rufus by the Skillet Lickers, Backstep Cindy by Tommy Gerald, La Valse a Frank Waugh by Dirk Powell, Drinking Champagne by Willie Nelson, and Last Pale Light in the West by Riley Boggus. Thank you once again to today's VIP supporter of the show. That's Christopher Clark. Become a VIP yourself by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Get your picky fingers merch over at banjopodcast.com and enter summer 23 from now through the end of August to get 23% off your order. Contact the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll see you all next time.